Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. The year 1968 stands out in the short 20th century for many different reasons. In Canada, of course, it was the liberal sweep at the federal level under the leadership of Pierre-Elliott Trudeau. In the United States, it started with the devastating impact of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, LBJ's announcement that he would not seek re-election, the assassinations of Martin Luther King in April of 1968 and two months later of Robert Kennedy. There was a lot of unease in the air. It was the year of the Prague Spring. It was the year when the Troubles started in Northern Ireland. It was, of course, the summer of student protests. In France, students shook de Gaulle and his regime to its roots. It proved fatal to his presidency. There were student protests around the globe, from the streets of Prague to Paris to Belgrade to Washington, D.C. to Mexico, Warsaw, Karachi, Berlin, Stockholm, Madrid, Rome, Rio de Janeiro, Kingston, Jamaica, Montreal, and, of course, Moncton, New Brunswick. Something remarkable and particular happened there, and to tell the story is Joël Beliveau, associate professor at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of In the Spirit of 68, Youth Culture, the New Left, and the Reimagining of Acadia, published by the University of British Columbia Press. Joël Beliveau, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. You're the witness to yesterday in this podcast. What happened on January 11th, 1969? So on that day, about 30 to 50 students stormed into the science building early in the morning uh, to occupy it on the campus of the Université de Moncton. Now, this university was only created in 1963, and the occupiers said that it wasn't yet a real university and demanded a ransom of about $32 million dollars to the federal government in order to uh, improve the university and do some kind of uh, catching up to the other universities in the region. They barricaded the doors and threatened to use fire hoses uh, on anyone who tried to dislodge them. Uh, Much of this story was brewing in 1968, uh, and there's an important backstory. Acadians in New Brunswick had experienced a quiet revolution that seemed to parallel what was happening in Quebec. Can you explain what the uh, the mentality in New Brunswick was in the 1960s? Yeah, sure. Um, so up to the 1950s, New Brunswick was quite decentralized. Everybody, you know, uh, did their own thing. And the province was just kind of, kind of a structure over top that was very little involved in everyday life. Um, and political scientists were predicting that this would continue. Yet in 1960, uh, the liberals swept into power with Louis Rabichaud uh, as premier. He was the first premier to be uh, Acadian to be elected premier of the province. And he uh, did massive reforms under the the title Program of Equal Opportunity, where he centralized uh, fiscality and administration in order to give the same level of services to all different regions. Of course, this was very beneficial to poor rural Acadian uh, counties, but it also helped some poor Anglophone counties. So he was able to avoid having a backlash, except in some richer cities that resented having to pay for services elsewhere in the province. But it gave the Acadians the impression that they were taking part in this post-world boom. Uh, Suddenly they had access to better services. And in the midst of all that, Louis Rabichaud created the Université de Moncton. Although he did it 
in the guise of a larger reform of post-secondary education in the province altogether. He was very careful to show that he was doing generalist reforms and not just for Acadians. Um, so in this sense, it's different from the Quiet Revolution. You know, in Quebec, we were talking about maître chez nous, or masters of our own home. We sensed that he was for French Canadians. Louis Robichaud did reforms that, was, that were quite as massive, but did it under the guise of equal opportunity. That was for everybody. And yet it was not enough for the students at the University of Moncton in 68-69. Well, could we see this uh, barricading of the building, this, this revolt, as um, a criticism of the Robichaud government? It was. It was in many senses. Um, well, the barricades came in 1969, as we said earlier, and uh, 69 was the act of what we called the spontaneist. You know, they were spontaneous uh, protests who were disappointed. These protesters were disappointed with the fact that the protest of the previous year, 1968, had not given any results. That year, 1968, the students had managed to hold a two-week strike. Uh, they had voted three times for the strike with massive yes votes of 80 and 85 percent. And they had managed to meet Premier Robichaud and his cabinet uh, in person during, um, during some protests in Fredericton. They were very uplifted by this and thought something would come of it, but nothing did. So the next year, in 1969, some, some students who were a bit more rebellious and a bit more, well, wanted to take things into their own hands and provoke, provoke the event. You know, they said newscasters only cover stories when there's a story to cover, so we need to do something to get people on board. And that's what they were betting on. Looking back on 1968, I get the impression that historians are often struggling uh, in the sense of trying to give it meaning. We see a lot of nationalism emerging. Certainly that's the case in Eastern Europe, and we also see this in Ireland. But the influence of the new left is also very important, and that was really obvious in Western Europe and in the United States. How do you see the mix of nationalism and new left in Moncton? Well, it was really an interesting case study. I was going in there expecting to cover mostly uh, a nationalist or neo-nationalist movement. But when I started digging to the years 64, 65, up till 67, what I found was a student movement that was you know, even anti-nationalist. The last thing they wanted to be was nationalist. They wanted to be modern, open to the world. So their causes were the causes of student movements everywhere. They were looking for, you know, uh, student participation in university governance, and they were protesting against the war in Vietnam. They wanted uh, autonomy for their structures, no more oversight for the association and, and the newspaper. They wanted nothing to do with anything that smelled or smacked of an Acadian cause. They even decided to join a provincial association with UNB instead of uh, an Acadian association of students that was being set up at the same moment. And um, at one point in 65, they had a poll on campus asking about a Maritime Union, which was a project that was floating around at that time. And a big majority said, yes, let's do it. You know, that's, it'll be good for modernization and so on. So they weren't overly concerned with culture. And then something shifted in 1968. You know, we, the book is called The Spirit of 68. Mm -hmm. In French, I, I talk about the 1968 moment. There's just a perfect storm that arrives. On the one hand, the university announces a, re a rise in tuition fees. So that's the perpetual issue, of course. And that 
prompts a strike. And during the strikes, they have teachings where they talk about all kinds of stuff. So that's a nice little area to have to, to discuss. Just a few months earlier, the, um, the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism had given its first report. And so they talked about that. And at the same time, there was a delegation of four Acadian adult leaders, uh, the Société Nationale de l'Acadie, or Acadian National Association, and so on, had been received by Charles de Gaulle in, in Paris. And that had prompted a response by Moncton's mayor, who was saying that dark clouds were hanging on the linguistic harmony that, was, that existed in Moncton. So in this context, where we were talking about language, we were talking about cultural ties to France, and we were talking about tuition fees, students started to put two things together, two things that had never discussed together at the same time. They started saying, we need lower student fees or tuition fees, not just you know, in the name of access to education in general or in abstract form, but also because we, we come from the poorest areas of this province. So it's not fair that we're paying higher tuition fees than students in UNB, which have a university that's been set up for over 100 years now. So that kind of discourse emerged. Some sociology professors helped it along, and that became really the mantra of this movement. And this, this discourse perpetuated itself way past 1968 and influenced the long 1970s in, in New Brunswick uh, quite a bit. So in 1968, you're saying you, you see a blend of, of new left thinking and a nationalist thinking. Yeah, well, they were reconciled with nationalism by painting it as a progressive cause and not as a traditionalist cause. Mm. They, they reconcile with nationalism by saying, oh, okay, okay, sure. Well, you know what? We have to face it. There's inequality. So we have to fight for these Francophone regions and for these Francophone institutions. But we're not doing it in the name of tradition. We're not you know, doing it in, for all the reasons our parents used to do it. And so they were quick to, to use the word neo-nationalist uh, to insist upon it. And a few students, for example, wrote papers on you know, the, uh, uh, how to uh, adequate socialism with nationalism. So th- th- that question really preoccupied them. What was the response of the University of Moncton, Université de Moncton, and what was the response of the city of Moncton? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, there, there was a, a, a march, uh, about 2,000 people marched on City Hall. The mayor told them to uh, go back to their studies, that bilingualism was too expensive. So that just fueled the fire, of course. The University of Moncton, was, uh, its uh, president was actually uh, Premier Rabichaud's uh, brother-in-law. So there was <laughs> lots of communication between Fredericton and the university administration. And for for them, for that generation of Acadian leaders, they thought they had finally made it. They, you know, these big reforms had helped Acadians quite a bit. And so they thought the, the kids were quite uh, thankless. They're ingrates, yes. Yeah, they, they were ingrates, yeah. <laughs> they, uh, Rabbi Shaw even threatened to close the university. But then uh, Savoie said, no, no, that'll just play into their hand. Don't do that. The Department of Sociology, though, will be a casualty of this confrontation. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's held responsible. <laughs> Yeah, six professors were shown the door, including four in sociology, and about 30 students were not readmitted for the next year, including all of the people responsible for the student newspaper. So, yes, uh, it, it was a harsh response. The students, it was for their actions, their protest. The, the professors, they made up excuses. Uh, they commissioned a report on the sociology program who concluded that it wasn't that great, and so they decided to shutter it. They opened it a few years later, but with a way more uh, practical and demographic approach. 
sociology never played the same role again uh, in Moncton. Was it perceived as a hotbed of Marxism? Is that, is that the idea? Well, th- that was certainly said. Um, and so I was very curious to read what these professors were teaching and especially what they were telling students. Uh, finally, what, what I saw was it was way more practical than that. It was simply empirical. They would say things like, okay, now, now let's compare the average revenue in you know, majority Francophone counties with the average revenue in other counties. And let's, count, uh, let's compare dropout rates from school in these counties and so on to, to illustrate that there is inequality. But there, was, there wasn't really a strong uh, Marxist rhetoric behind it, no. Who were these students? What do you know about these student leaders? Well, the students first, it was an interesting mix because you had many Francophones from southeastern New Brunswick who were minority Francophones who were kind of used to having uh, sugar broken on their backs, as we say in French, uh, who used to be kind of uh, not second-class citizens, but not too far away from that. You know, there was a time, well, up to that time, really, it was common for people to go downtown and to stop speaking French. Uh, it was considered impolite, or people would change their names to get a good job at the CN shops, for example. You know, Le Blancs would become whites and so mm-hmm. on. So these were francophones that were used to anglophone domination, or at least domination of the English language in the public sphere. But then there were also students coming from northern New Brunswick, small villages, rural areas, uh, that had not known that. You know, uh, the English being a majority, that was abstract to them. So they weren't used to you know, not speaking loud in the street and so on. And there was lots of interaction be- between these two types of students. And then there were a few Quebecois. And later on, some people said that the protests were you know, organized by the Quebecois loudmouths. But that really isn't the case. There's nothing to back that up. Uh, as for the leaders, uh, well, you have a bit of of all of that. Uh, the um, the student who organized a protest at City Hall, his name was Bernard Gauvin. He was from the what was now the Dieppe region, close to Moncton. Uh, he's kind of a francophone who's discovering the fact that he's he's not living his his mother language or mother culture uh, quite as freely as he'd want to. And then the student newspaper's director, uh, Michel Blanchard. He's, uh, he's the son of a, a union leader from uh, northern New Brunswick, a female union leader from northern New Brunswick. He was quite spontaneous in his, uh, he was quick, he had quick repartee and he was incendiary in his articles. So that helped things along quite a bit. Stepping back uh, and looking at the 68 moment in Canada, uh, how do you rate the literature, the state of the literature on the student movement and the social movements of the 1960s? How, how do you how do you look at the literature as it stands right now? Well, it's certainly uh, there's been a flurry, a big flurry of activity in the 1990s and 2000 up to 2015. I would say that when I was writing this dissertation that led to the book, I really felt that I was doing something as part of a group, you know, almost like these students in the 1960s. They felt part of something bigger. Lots of scholarship was being written at that time. I was most inspired by the most transnational aspects of it, like uh, the uh, the work of Sean Mills and Jean-Philippe Warren in Quebec, uh, who were also establishing links between what students were thinking in Canada and what was happening elsewhere in the world. So do you think that we are in a good position in Canada in terms of our literature in the 1960s? Um, Well, I mean, sure, it's always difficult to compare ourselves to the U.S., but certainly there's a lot more. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and I see at least 10 uh, collections uh, on the 1960s in Canada. So we're certainly a lot better off than we were 15 years ago. So how do you see the, 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 the Moncton protests in relation to what was happening around the world at that time? 
it's interesting, again, there's this tension. See, um, when the movement was founded, there was this idea, there was a very definite feeling of being part of something bigger. You know, there was this generational identity that was very strong. They, they, they mimicked what was happening elsewhere, uh, whether it's, you know, tactics, you know, how to organize a protest, how to organize a sit-in, using the word sit-in for whatever they were doing, uh, or teaching. And, and at first, it, it kind of felt like they just wanted to be the Moncton chapter of this bigger thing. Um, but then local issues came to the fore, and they were not able to abstract themselves from that. They, they weren't able to ignore them. And so reluctantly, they started looking at language issues and so on. But they very much identified with uh, the new left in the U.S. And, and in 1969, they, they identified with the, the Paris uh, spring of 1968. Well, you argue that Acadia was reimagined in this moment, and I think that in this, you go far, much further uh, than what others have written on, on this topic. What do you mean by Acadia being reimagined? Well, I guess uh, it's, I'm, I'm uh, using a constructionist uh, framework where I do believe that identities are not you know, embedded in, in bodies, but are rather imagined, you know, as Benedict Anderson says. And so uh, what is Acadia depends on what discourses are circulating on what is Acadia. And it seems pretty obvious to me that in the 1960s, this discourse changed quite a bit. You know, the, between two uh, shifts or two moments, uh, they were able first to uh, let go of the traditional definition of what, what, what is Acadian. We didn't talk about that too much, but the mid-1960s was all about modernity and liberalism and taking taking one's place in New Brunswick society, in the maritime society, in Canadian society. And that was the students who were speaking that way, but even Acadian leaders, you know, uh, nationalism was on the wane. Uh, there was this big hope that, that we could modernize, remain, remain francophone, but uh, even the name Acadian was being swept to the wayside, you know, that was passé. So that was the first movement. And the second movement is this, this neo-nationalist movement that happens where people uh, re- reinterpret what it means to be Acadian, uh, take a, out a lot of the traditional content and, and say, well, an Acadian is someone who uh, speaks French, certainly, uh, who comes from these counties, um, and who is dominated. So they, they transform uh, the linguistic issue into a social justice issue. So in that sense, there's reinvention. And uh, Michael Poplienski in Regina is working on the 70s and shows that this neo-nationalist movement will certainly reintegrate many uh, aspects of traditional nationalism later on. But I think this shift was very important for people not to think of, of language issues as something like a rear guard. What's the expression for that? A rear guard combat. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw it as something that was modern. Um, and I think that when you look at francophones in some other parts of the country, there's this there has been some reinvention, but there's also the idea that it's, uh, it's something that's a bit traditional. You've partly anticipated my next question, which was, what is what do you think is the legacy of what happened in 68, 69, and 70 in, in the University of Moncton? The, the legacy is, uh, has many aspects. Uh, first of all, this discourse on equality permeated the 1970s. Uh, in 1972, there was a political party called Le Parti Acadien, or the Acadian Party, that was founded. It's an extension of this new discourse created by the students to other spheres of activity. You know, they're asking for decentralization or even partition of the province and so on. Another issue that became big at that moment was the school issue. 
school uh, school commissions uh, were being run uh, in a bilingual fashion, and uh, people started asking for distinct institutions, uh, school institutions for for Acadians. And in 1974, already a duality in education was was created. So there's this idea of duality that is added in New Brunswick uh, above and beyond uh, bilingualism. The idea that the community uh, deserves its its own institutions which was later even recognized by, by law, Law 88, which recognizes that there are two linguistic and cultural communities in New Brunswick. So I think the political implications have been uh, uh, very important. And uh, right now, as we speak in 2020, much of this legacy is being put into question again. There is linguistic unrest again in New Brunswick, and it remains to be seen whether this uh, compromise stays. So the spirit of 68 might still have some lasting, lasting echoes. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. There's uh, certainly a discussion, a lively discussion going on right now in New Brunswick. I have to ask you in closing the, the, the classic Champlain Society question. What were your sources for this book? Uh, did you, were you able to interview some of the people who were the key actors in these events? I did interview some uh, in, informally, did use uh, a bit of that. Uh, but mostly it's first the student newspapers, secondly the local newspapers, both French and English, and the real treasure trove was a funds that's found at the Université de Laval, uh, Laval University. They have the fond Pierre Perrault. Pierre Perrault was a, a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker for the National Film Board. He came to New Brunswick in 68, again in 68 in the summer, and in 69 again. He filmed m- many of these protests. He filmed many of the meetings that the students had when there was nobody else around. He made, did interviews. And all of that is kept at, at Laval, so it was uh, it was really a treasure trove where you could see uh, students discussing between themselves and arguing between themselves. So you could really follow their logic. So you actually see footage. You actually have footage. Unfortunately, the footage is is lost except for the actual film. But Pierre Perrault was a workaholic. He actually transcribed about thirty hours of film. Oh, really? <laughs> completely, along with his own notes, he would comment here and there. Uh, so it's very long, <laughs> but there are 30 hours of, uh, of transcriptions there, mostly of what the students are saying. So I think because of that, it's, uh, it's for these years, the Moncton Student Movement is probably one of the better documented uh, in Canada or even North America. Well, it's a, it's a very, very captivating story, and I thank you for writing in the spirit of 68. Thanks for being my guest today, Joël Bédiveau. It was my pleasure. That was Joël Bédiveau, associate professor at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of In the Spirit of 68, Youth Culture, the New Left, and the Reimagining of Acadia, published by the University of British Columbia Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and sustainer of the society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on March 4th, 2020, and produced by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.